You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and I'm so excited. Today is week three, the final week of our fall teaching series called Walk With God. Uh, After Jesus rose from the grave, uh, he spent 40 days on earth appearing to different followers. We have record of up to about 500 different people. Uh, But primarily, he spent that time with the 11, right? It's the 12 apostles minus Judas. And he was really spending that time giving them his final instructions for what they would do when he would leave them. He would soon ascend into heaven, and essentially what he was doing was handing them to key, the keys and saying, it's your turn to drive. And uh, he's, he's up on a mountain. I don't know if you've read that scene before in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. And you know, he gives them the, the great commission, go and make disciples. He tells them that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's this powerful promise. It's this command, but he also gives them the authority, right, and the power to fulfill that command. And then... Miraculously, he ascends into heaven. I mean, this is crazy. Uh, it, you know, he, he's levitating or floating, and they're just standing there, and they're like, what is going on? Like, we wouldn't believe it unless we knew that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the grave. I mean, it's no crazier than a dead person rising from the grave, right? And so he ascends into heaven, and there's this really kind of funny detail that Luke records at the beginning of the, the book of Acts, where what happens is, you know, the, the rest of the Gospels, they kind of end there with the ascension, right? But in the book of Acts, it's like the story of the church. And so the book of Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus. And what what Luke records is the apostles are standing there and they're just like, like, what do we do now? Right? They're like mouths open, paralyzed, processing. Like, did he seriously just float into the sky? And this is what happens next in Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, I wonder how much time went by, by the way. They're standing there. Behold, two men stood by them, and this is two angels, uh, in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this is kind of like funny detail, but when we really think about this, they're so kind of awestruck, and they're looking at at Jesus. Like, have you ever seen, like, you let go of a balloon, and it's just smaller and smaller. You're like, is that balloon going to go into space? You're like, what's happening? They're standing there, and God has to send two angels from heaven to say, okay, do you remember what Jesus literally just told you to do? And it's not that they're doing anything wrong, it's just that they're not doing anything, right? They're standing there looking up into heaven. And the angels, their message, like modern translation, what are you doing just standing around? Jesus is coming back. 
He's coming back. And the kingdom of heaven, like this, this is our time. This is the age of the church. And I can't help but think about that small little funny detail that Luke records in the book of Acts. And I wonder if we don't resonate with the disciples as the American church today. Where we're really good at standing around looking into heaven, singing songs to God, praying, right, our own kind of reading the Bible ourselves. But I wonder if, if God needs to send a messenger from heaven to shake us out of it, out of our apathy, out of our stagnation, and to tell us, don't you realize Jesus is coming back? And there's work to be done. Can you, I care about this so much. He's coming back. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25. The parable is the, the story of the talents. And these three different servants are left with different amounts of money, different talents. And, uh, and the master comes back, and there's a settling of accounts. And you realize there's only two responses that the servants will hear. The first two servants who took what the master entrusted to them and they did something, they obeyed him, they followed his commands. What does he say? Do you remember that line? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, you'll be given more. Enter into the joy of your master. And the third servant, the one talent guy, he doesn't lose the money, does he? What does he do with it? He does nothing with it. He buries it in the sand. He keeps it safe, right? He doesn't lose it. And what is the master's response? This is from Jesus Christ himself, by the way. You wicked and lazy servant, depart from me. And the reality is, Jesus is coming back. In the same way that he went, he's going to come back. And we need to be woke, wake up, church. We need to be shaken out of it, snap out of it. Jesus is coming back, and there's work to be done. Today is week three. There's three steps in our discipleship path. Here's the chart. For those of you who missed the last two weeks, this is really uh, important. Not every one of our teaching series is chronological, and that it builds on itself. This one really is. So I'd encourage you to go back, listen to weeks one and two. There's three steps in our discipleship path, which move us along to maturity in Christ. Step one. Everyone say it. Be with Jesus. Step two. It's on the screen, by the way. Step two. <laughs> become like Jesus. That was last week. And then step three. Today we're talking about do what Jesus did. Now, the reason why step three, do what Jesus did, is the third step is not necessarily because you have to wait a super long time. If you're, a new, if you're, if you're new to the faith, you just got baptized, I'm not saying that God can't use you, okay? So don't, don't hear me saying that at all. What I am saying is, though, that we cannot shortcut steps one and two and immediately move on to step three. Does that make sense? Because we're going to get ourselves into all kinds of different problems. One of the problems that we can get into is we can get into the problem that we, that we feel like, okay, now I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to move right away with doing good works and doing good things, is we can almost, in our minds, start to believe that we're saved by the things that we do, as opposed to being saved by the grace of God. Do you see how that can happen? 
right? So there are good works that God has called you to do, but we have to, we have to remember, it grow, the things we do for God grows out of being with God, grows out of what Jesus has already done for us, and it's the fruit and it's the overflow of that. And another problem that we can get into if we skip straight to step three without doing steps one and step two is if we haven't ourselves experienced last week the sanctification that comes from spending time with Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to, to grow spiritual fruit in our lives, what can happen is we can begin to do the works that Jesus did. We can do ministry. We can make disciples, but we will soon turn into blind guides leading the blind. People who have got logs sticking out of our eyes, raising up more people to have logs sticking out of their eyes. So this is why it's very, very important. But what all of us need to understand, so today, if you're growing or mature in the faith, I pray that today would be very challenging for you. I know that's a difficult thing to say. But if you're someone who you say, I've followed Jesus for years and years and years, I pray that if you're in those last two stages of discipleship, like the angels from heaven, what are you doing standing around? I pray that today would be challenging for you. That's, okay. <laughs> but if you're, if you're here and you're maybe, maybe not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to just understand that God has a purpose for your life. He invites you into a bigger calling. If you're here and you're, you're new to the faith or maybe you're still young in the faith, I hope that you would full well understand that if you walk with God long enough, you will inevitably do the things that Jesus did. That this is where the path leads. It leads us into action. It leads us into ministry. And if you don't want to take it from me, take it from Jesus himself. John 14, 12. Jesus, before he went to the cross, said these words to his disciples. This, you could take this one verse and just pray through it this week, and it'll blow your mind every single time you read it. You ready for this? John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, everyone say whoever. whoever. Are you whoever? Yes. yes. Am I Whoever. Literally anyone who's a believer, okay? So insert that, right? Whoever believes in me will also do the what? The works that I do. There's an expectation from Christ that we would not just stand around looking into heaven saying, isn't that Jesus guy great? But we would go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, be his witnesses, they will do the works that I do. And this is the crazy part. And greater works than these he will do. Do you believe that? <laughs> I don't know if I believe that. And I'm the, the pastor, okay? <laughs> greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. So he empowers us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I, greater works than these? I'm not like... I'm not so sure if, if we're doing that because I'm not so sure that very many American Christians are even doing the works that Jesus did. Now, we have this saying in our lives, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. That's not how God operates. Do you realize that? This is actually crazy for us to understand. Why wouldn't Jesus, after raising from the dead, just say, I'm going to start my own church, and I'm going to lead it. I'm going to be the lead pastor forever. And the disciples, you're going to come, and you're just going to kind of be my, like, my helpers in it. Jesus ascends. He hands the keys to Peter of all people. I want you to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is, in, this is insane. 
If you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. That is not how God operates. He's actually left it to us to partner with him in his mission to seek and to save the lost. And I hope that from today, you would not just be challenged, okay? But I pray that today you would have a greater sense of the calling and the purpose to which you've been called. You know that Paul tells us that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we've been called. When you understand the calling of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and you begin to live differently in light of it, the world will never be the same. So what did Jesus do, right? If Jesus said that we will do the works that he has done, then what did he do? We're going to be in a teaching text out of Matthew chapter 4 today. We're actually going to look at the main teaching text in just a moment, but I want to read you a verse that takes place right after our main teaching text. A few times in Matthew, we have these kind of summary statements about the ministry of Christ, and I want to read you one of those from Matthew 4, verse 23 says this, and he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So there's four things. I don't know if you caught it. There's four verbs that Matthew uses to describe the ministry of Jesus. You can can read these same four things. It's kind of a trend of the ministry of Jesus. These are four characteristics. And I think we can learn about our own Ministries, And when I say ministry today, just so you know, I'm not talking about if you're working at a church in, you know, in ministry in our typical sense. We're, we're taught by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave some people to, to lead in these kind of like church leadership capacities, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Who's the saints? It's, it's all of us for the work of ministry. That word... Ministry means literally service. This is what's called the priesthood of all believers. Do you realize you have a ministry to do, is a way of saying that. Even if you don't work at a church or a nonprofit, if you don't you know, lead an orphanage or anything like that, that you have been given a ministry by the Holy Spirit that God is calling you to do. He's called you to do. And so I want to look at just these four verbs really quick from the ministry of Jesus and just kind of look at your ministry, your life, and the ministry of Christ and just ask these four questions. The first one is Jesus went. He was, a, he was traveling, right? And he didn't travel super far. I mean, most of the places he traveled, he traveled on foot. But he traveled around, right? He, was, uh, he didn't have a place to stay. He was always going from city to city, from village to village. And I would just ask you the question, are you on the move for the kingdom? Or are you sitting across the street to your neighbor's house? Are you walking down the hall to the person who works at your, your workplace? Are you on the move or are you standing still? Jesus was always on the move. He went. The second thing, uh, characteristic of the ministry of Christ is he taught. He taught. He taught in their synagogues. This is he was explaining scripture. So Jesus knew scripture and he, he taught out of scripture. And this is something that you can do. Do you know God's word and do you teach it to others? Do you teach it to your kids? Do you talk to them about the Bible? Are you so filled with God's word that it's the thing that spills out in your speech? 
Have you hidden God's word in your heart? Does, it, does God's word dwell richly within you? That when you're posting on social media, it's just like, you know what? Forget about what I had for lunch today. Bible verse. Like, it just comes out in conversation. It comes out in your marriage. It comes out in your, in your friendships. Do you talk about the Bible with others? The third characteristic is Jesus preached. Now, there's a little difference between teaching and preaching. Preaching is proclaiming the gospel. And uh, Jesus' gospel message, by the way, if you're like, well, I don't even know like, how I do you, It's a one-sentence gospel message. Read, read Matthew. Here it is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you memorize that? You probably already have it memorized. Just for me saying it one time. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. And people are coming to Christ, right? And there's, there's more to it than just that. But that's really the summary message. So I always ask you this question. Because it's not just for, for preachers like me on a stage on a Sunday morning to preach. It's for every believer to be able to articulate and verbalize the gospel. Can you do that? And are you sharing that and pointing people to Jesus through what you say about Jesus and through how you live for Jesus, right? There's that famous quote uh, about preaching the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And I would say we've kind of used that in the American church as almost an excuse. I guess I'll never have to use my words. And I would just say, that's not the point, right? (laughs) The point is that we would be able to share with our words and our lives and our love, the gospel. And then the fourth characteristic is Jesus healed. He had an incredible, miraculous ministry. He healed people. He cast out demons. He multiplied loaves and fish. He did all these powerful signs that validated, substantiated the ministry of Christ. Uh, and I would just say to you, because you might, this is, this is the one where you might feel a little bit inadequate, right? Well, I've never, you know, cast a demon out, or I've never done these kind of things. And I would just ask this question, because Jesus cared not only for the spiritual needs of people, he also cared for what? Their physical needs. Jairus' daughter is dead, and Jesus cares about that, okay? Like, he cares about these actual physical needs, and this should be true of Jesus' followers as well. So I would just ask you, are you helpful? Would someone, if they're like, if they're going to move, they're like, I should call my Christian friend, because that person is incredibly helpful, they're always helpful. They always have a tic-tac when you need it. They always have, you know, whatever. And, and are, you, are you like a healing presence in people's lives, right? You know that, right? Like relationally, someone that you're around and you just feel drained, like a vampire, like, ugh, they suck the life out of me, right? And there's other people that you're around and you feel filled up. This should be followers of Christ should be, have a healing presence, even just relationally in conversation with others. So those are the four characteristics we see time and time again about the ministry of Christ. Are those four things true of you in your life? Now, don't worry, uh, because especially with this healing one, we, we really like, man, okay, feeding thousands of people, multiplying those things, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. And you're like, man, Jesus said I would do greater works than him. I haven't even done any of those kind of things, right? So let me, let me clarify, though. Don't worry if you've never cast out a demon. Actually, I said a couple weeks ago that I've never cast out a demon. No joke, the next Wednesday, there was someone who came into the church looking for someone to cast out a demon. Insane. Okay, that's another story for another time. Some of you are like, you can't just drop that. Yeah, I I can. Okay. (laughs) The reality is everyone has different spiritual gifts, okay? Parable of the talents, three different amounts of money, three different 
talents, okay? Everyone has different spiritual gifts. And what I just read to you, the summary statement of the ministry of Christ, is in some ways specific to the ministry of Christ. There's things, there's principles we can learn from that. But I'm not saying that you have to be homeless and travel around and teach in synagogues and proclaim like, to, in front of thousands of people, proclaim the gospel and also cast out demons. I'm not saying that you're a failure as a follower. Do you hear that? I'm not saying that whatsoever. Here's what I, so your ministry doesn't have to look exactly like the ministry of Christ because every believer is gifted in different ways. And uh, so here's the point though, with whatever God has given you, use your gifts for God's kingdom, okay? Everyone has a job to do. It's one of our core values, Use your gifts. Use whatever. Everyone say whatever. Whatever. Whoever follows after Jesus is going to do his works. And what kind of works are they going to do? Whatever gifts God has given you, okay? Whatever God has given you, use those gifts for God's kingdom. The dominant metaphor in Paul's letters to the church is the metaphor of a body, right? Not every body part is the same. They all have different functions. Look at what he says in Romans 12, 4 through 6. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that what? Differ. You're going to have different gifts than the next person. According to the grace given to us, let us use them. And if you want to see the gifts that God has given you grow, then you need to use them. Okay? Those who are faithful with a little will be given more. Okay? If you want to see God use your life for a greater purpose and a greater impact for the kingdom of heaven, then let us use them. Use them, and some of us have it backwards. When God gifts me in powerful ways, then I'm going to use them. And what God has been asking you from the moment that you put your faith in Jesus is what are you doing standing around? Use whatever God has given you. And I think one of the things that that prevents us from using our gifts is we're too busy looking at someone else's gifts. It's like the pinky toe, right, looking at the eyeball and be like, I'm just a pinky toe, right? It's like the pinky toe is great. You'd be totally off balance. It's the little, you know, the little pig that goes wee, wee, wee all the way home. Like, you got to have a pinky toe. And, uh, and, and so I love what Bob Goff says about this. He says, God doesn't compare what he creates. So why are you? God doesn't compare what he creates. He's not asking the one-talent guy why he didn't make five talents like the five-talent guy, right? He's going to hold every single one of us accountable to what he's given us. Compare, I say this all the time. Comparison kills calling. If you want to activate your calling and follow Jesus, then you need to stop focusing on how you're not like everyone else and just start focusing on what God has given to you. Now, there's lots of great books and resources. There's online spiritual gift assessments, and you can do all those sorts of things, and that's great. But I think in some ways, we've maybe overcomplicated this. It's really, you know, you know who knows you the best other than God? It's actually you, I would guess that if someone asked you, hey, what are you good at? You'd probably know the answer to that. What are you bad at? What experiences have you been through? What kind of relationships do you have that might be opportunities to share the gospel? How much money do you have? Like, I'm not asking you that, much, that question right now. But it's like, th- those are all things. How much free time do you have? 
Where do you live? Where are you located? Literally just think about your life and imagine your entire life in a little bag that's one of those bags of talents. And that is what Jesus has handed to you at this moment in time. And at some moments in life, he's going to, you're going to be faithful and he's going to add to that and give you more influence and more availability and more whatever, more gifting even. But right now, he's handed you your life in the context and the situation with the relationship with the giftings you have. And he's saying, how will you use that for my kingdom? So that's, that's the first aspect of what it means to do what Jesus did, is it means we view ourselves as a priesthood of all believers, as gifted by God, and we're going to use those gifts for his kingdom. Now, specific callings, specific uh, ministry callings are going to look different based on spiritual giftings, but what I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about is one thing that is the same for every single disciple, and it's our callings may be different, do you see that? But our commission is the exact same, regardless of your giftings. And that's what I want to look at in our main teaching text for today. Back in Matthew chapter 4, this is the calling of four of the first disciples. Matthew 4, verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were, everyone say it, fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, a great pun, by the way. That's, how you, that's a good sign of a preacher. They know the puns. Uh, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately le- left the boat and followed. Uh, they left the boat and their father and followed them. This is not only a great pun, fishers of men, right? Fishermen to fishers of men. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's calling them to adjust their entire life purpose. Do you see this? This is, this is actually kind of crazy when you think about it. Uh, Howard Schultz, who's the CEO of, of Starbucks. I'm not like a huge Starbucks guy or anything. So I'm, this is not like an endorsement of Starbucks. Don't get me wrong. But he had this kind of revolutionary way of thinking about the coffee business. Have you heard this before? Maybe you've heard it in a leadership talk, but he has this quote where he said, sometime in like the, the late 80s, he made this shift from, from like kind of with all the franchises from saying, we're not in the coffee business serving people. Do you know the quote? We're in the people business serving coffee. Do you see the difference there? So he's looking at like, what business are we in? Coffee, coffee, coffee. And these are just customers, faceless, nameless people. You know, they don't get your name right at Starbucks, right? And they're coming in and they're going out. And it's just the, about the money. He said, no, 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 we're going to change the whole thing. Coffee's, yeah, coffee's our product. But really, we're in the people business. And we happen to serve coffee. This is what Jesus is doing. He's telling us, you're not, you're not in the fish business anymore. You're in the people business. Here's the point. We, you and I, are in the people business And what's the people business? Making disciples. That's the people business. What was Jesus doing that day, by the way, walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee? I would argue that Jesus himself was fishing. He was fishing for men. He was doing that day the very thing that these men would do in about three and a half years. Do you see that? That that day, Jesus is being a fisher of men. This is the, the detail we kind of miss out. Jesus is the first fisher of men here. 
And he's fishing for followers. He's fishing for disciples. He's fishing for people who want to be with him, become like him. And what's the third step? It's what we're talking about. Do what he did. That's discipleship, okay? That's his pathway. He's fishing for followers. He's fishing for people. And he finds, and he's already interacted, by the way, if you read the Gospel of John, he's interacted with these guys before. So he kind of knows them already. They've spent a little bit of time with them. And he says, now I'm going to fish for you. I'm going to make you not a fisherman. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Translation, you're going to be my disciple, and one day you yourself will make Disciples, And I would argue, if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever, think about if somebody asked you what you do for work, and they asked it to you like this, what kind of business are you in? How would you answer that question? Right? Even if you're a stay-at-home parent, well, I'm in the, the, the kid business or whatever, right? Or I'm in the, the paper business, or I'm in whatever business you're in. This should be our answer as followers of Jesus. Regardless of what you do for a job, every single disciple is in the people business, making disciples. I experienced this to some degree uh, in my own calling to ministry. Did you realize what I wanted to do when I, when I uh, graduated high school, the occupation? I wanted to be a math teacher. Not a lot of people know this. I was really good at math. I say was because it does kind of wear off after a while. Okay, give it a decade, give or take. And uh, I was really good at math, though, in high school. And I, and I, but I knew I had this passion for teaching. And I would even, I, I, I would even, what, what do you call a tutor? I would tutor my friends, like my actual buddies, because I was a few years ahead of them in math. And I was like, let me tutor you in math. And I, I like, more than even like learning about numbers, I loved explaining things. And then I decided to go to Bible college for one year. That was 13 years ago. I never left still here in Boise, but there was this shift somewhere along the summer after my freshman year at Bible college where I thought, you know what? I think what I love about, you know, wanting to be a math teacher is not actually the math. It's, it's teaching. What else could I teach people about? <laughs> and it's the truth of God's word. And that was, that was this, this pivotal moment. For, and I'm not, saying, I'm not even saying today that you need to move out of whatever career you're in and switch to, to be in a ministry or anything like that. But I hope that you would understand that your primary business is you're in the people business making disciples. And this is like the day that Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John. So this is the start. And you can draw a straight line all the way to the commission that day on the ascension. D.A. Carson says it like this. There is a straight line from this commission in Matthew 4 to the great commission in Matthew 28. Jesus' followers are indeed to catch men, men and women. Now, this is this amazing moment where they literally do leave their jobs, don't they? I mean, and, and we kind of think like, okay, you know, fishermen, not maybe like the greatest occupation in the world. It seems like they're doing pretty well, actually, for themselves. If you live literally in a sea town, it's probably one of the best occupations you could have is to catch fish from the sea. So we kind of maybe like think about this a little bit wrong sometimes. Uh, in another one of the Gospels, we read that James and John leave servants with their father. So it's kind of like a boom in business, okay? But they leave it behind, they make a career change. They leave the nets, and they leave their families, and they spend significant time with Jesus. So those are four, the four, four of the first disciples who follow him. But what we don't always realize is that not everyone who Jesus calls to follow him actually follow. Do you realize that? I want to give you four more examples 
four other guys in the Gospels who don't follow Jesus. And I think we can learn just as much from them as we do from these four. Uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell says it like this. We won't all be leaving the fishing profession, because not all of us are in the fishing profession, right? Uh, to be called apostles. And this is like in the traditional sense, the, the capital A, the office of an apostle. Or to be martyred for the faith. He says, I know that. I know that that's not going to be the case for every single person. He says this, but I also know that when Christ calls you to repent and follow him, you better expect to be disrupted from your ordinary life. Following Jesus, hear me out on this, will always disrupt your ordinary life. And I would just say this, if you've never experienced any disruption to your plans, you might not be following Jesus properly. Following Jesus inevitably will cause you, if you've got the hand on the fishing nets, to set those nets down, okay? Because if there's, there's certain things that are mutually exclusive. There's a cost. This is called the cost of discipleship. There is a cost associated with our calling. Jesus put it like this. If anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross and deny themselves. There's a cost. Jesus was up front. This isn't some fine print, kind of like used car salesman, like what's really under the hood? This is like up front. There's a cost associated with your following. And I want to show you four people, three of them from Luke 9 and one of them from Luke 18, who are called to follow Jesus, but there's something that gets in the way for each one. The first one is in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, and the thing that got in the way of this guy was comfort. He's, he's interested in following Jesus, and Jesus, he can see through people, right? And so he knows, like, maybe, I don't know, this guy's got, like, really nice sandals. And he's like, those are a little too nice. And he says this, Jesus says, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this guy's like, well, well I'm out. Because there better be a nice Airbnb wherever we're going, right? I better not, I, and for us, comfort is something that we have to legitimately lay down if we're going to say yes to walking by the Holy Spirit day in and day out. The second man comes up and he's interested in following Jesus, and it's a relationship in his life that is actually the thing that prevents him in Luke 9, 60. Jesus says to him, this sounds harsh, but this is Jesus being very upfront. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Do you see that line, go and proclaim? He's inviting him to do the ministry legitimately. And this man goes away sad. He's unwilling. And for us in our lives, there may be relationships that are pulling you away from Christ, that are dragging you down. And there's a difference, right? There's a difference between someone who's, man, you're spending time with them intentionally to preach the gospel, and there's a difference between those people who maybe have too much of an influence on us that are dragging us away from God's purpose and his calling. And uh, the next man, there's three guys in Luke 9, the next man, it's his career. It's his business. And Jesus says this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And he says, this is not some like, you know, next step, stepping stone into growing your business into being more successful. Do you want to know what happened to the early church? If people knew that they were followers of Jesus? I mean, in the most extreme cases, people were martyred, but in many other cases, it was simply kind of like the slow death of no one visited their business anymore. No one would use them because they were the outcasts. It was a disowning by your community, even your friends and your family. And then the, the fourth guy shows up in Luke chapter 18. It's the rich young ruler. Maybe you remember him. 
and he's followed the, the law of the Lord since he was a little boy. I mean, he's a very righteous man. He's followed uh, God since he was little. And I, there's almost this like Jesus being like, you could be the 13th disciple, right? Like, like this guy's got it. He's right on the edge. But money is the thing that stands in the way. And Jesus says this, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, I think this is really, really significant. Like, I have a bed, okay? Does that make sense? So, these foxes have, you know, dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like, I actually get to sleep on a bed at night, I like sell everything that you have and come and follow. So some of these is Jesus specifically speaking into the barrier that's preventing those people from following him. Does that make sense? And I would just ask you this question. What is that fishing net for you? What is the thing that God is calling you to set down that is preventing you from fully following Jesus with everything? What is holding you back? It might be a little bit different for each person. Right? The spiritual giftings might be a little bit different, but also the thing that maybe is an idol in your life or the thing that's holding you back, it may not even be a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with you know, relationships or even having a strong career or comfort necessarily. But when those things become the thing that you obey other than Christ, we need to throw those things aside immediately. And that's what's powerful about this story in Matthew chapter four. How fast do Peter, Andrew, and James and John respond immediately, throw the nets aside, and they follow Jesus. Now, this sounds really difficult, doesn't it? Does this sound difficult to anyone else? It is, it's very difficult. This is, this is why I think step three of our discipleship path is an often neglected, overlooked, fine print kind of sales pitch in the American gospel. That there's this, yes, be with Jesus, and maybe even personally become like Jesus, but the whole, what are you going to leave behind to follow him and obey him and pursue the good works that he has for you, that's kind of an afterthought. That's for the varsity Christians. That's for the people who really want to, you know, they, they really want the mansions in heaven or whatever. And I would just say that this is an outright expectation of Jesus on every single disciple. And so... You might ask, like, oh, this, is a, this is a lot. There's a cost that comes with the calling to be a disciple. And you might have this kind of question, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And you're not alone in that question. Peter, in Matthew 19, after actually the, the rich young ruler account, he's like, man, that's pretty harsh that Jesus would ask this guy to sell everything. You know, Peter actually still owned the boat. He's like, well, I got to keep my boat on the side, right? He's like, this guy's going to sell everything? He's like, man, who can follow you? And, and what are we going to do? I mean, we've left everything behind to follow you. Is it going to be worth it? And this is Jesus' response in Matthew 19, verse 2, and will inherit eternal life. What's the price tag of eternal life? I mean, what does it profit a person if you have all the comfort and the best relationships and the most successful career and all the money in the world? by the world, and yet you forfeit your soul, Jesus says. And so just think about this. I mean, often, like, we have to be upfront about the cost of our calling, but think about the cost of the gospel. What did Jesus give up for you? I mean, the son left his throne on high. 
And he entered into our world and, 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 and was, was found in appearance as a man. And he was not only a man, but a servant. He served us. And he helped people. And then he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus gave up for you so that you might inherit eternal life, so that you can be forgiven from your sins and you can, you, you can be made alive in Christ. Here's the difference between a fisherman and a fisher of men. You ready for this? What do you do with a fish when you catch it? And this is not recreational, by the way. What do you do with a fish when you catch it? You kill it. So a fisherman is catching fish for death. What is a fisher of men doing? They're catching people for life, for eternal life. So when we're talking about a fisher of men, becoming fishers of men, disciples who make disciples, we're not just talking about, man, this is a great way to live. And I think it is a great, I think it's the best way to live, to live as a follower of Jesus. But it's even deeper than that. We're talking about being a fisher of men and women who God literally uses to speak gospel truths to catch them out of the, the, the ocean sinking in guilt and shame and eternal death. That's what's on the line here. Is there any higher purpose or calling that you could devote every moment of your life to than, saving, than, than being used by God to save people from death? That's the gospel. What Jesus has done for you and what he invites you to be a part of doing for others. And if you've never received the gospel, I just want to tell you, the work has already been accomplished for you by what Christ did, the Son of God did, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, being raised back to life in victory. And you can share in the victory. You can be saved today. Would you repent? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would you repent? Would you turn from your old life and be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins? You can find out more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism, but I would love to invite you today to just receive the gospel by faith and put your full trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, for many of you, you've received that. You've been caught in the net. Let's say it's not the hooks, because that's pretty, like a net, okay? Which, by the way, that's what the disciples were using, so we're sticking with the text here. I don't want some kind of hook in my mouth or whatever. And uh, so you've been caught. You've been saved from death into life. And God is calling you to do the same for others. This is God's plan to save the world. Do you realize this? It's his plan. It's why it's the Great Commission, Jesus' final instructions to go and make disciples. I just uh, finished reading a book. We have a few copies in our resource area. The book is called How to Save the World. That's an ambitious title, okay? It's an ambitious title until you realize it's not, that this is literally God's plan to save the world. It's called Disciple Making Made Simple, which is, by the way, my favorite books have the word simple somewhere on the cover. Because it's just like, that's what we need. We need simple instructions for how to follow God. It's by uh, an author named Alice Matagora. And she is a disciple maker herself. And it, it, one of the things I love about this book is it had uh, original research from Barna Research Group. Uh, literally, the navigators uh, who published the book, Nav Press, they commissioned Barna to do disciple making specific Research to just find out, like, how's the American church doing in disciple-making? And there's this question. One of the questions they asked uh, Christians in America was this question. Is discipling others something that is expected of you? And I got, I'm going to share the results, 
But this is what I'm talking about when I say we have a discipleship crisis in America. Okay, are you ready for this? Here's the results. Christians, churchgoers answering the question, 70% answered no. I don't think that discipling others is something God really expects of me to do. It's for the bonus Christians. It's for the extra credit Christians. It's just not for me. And I just, in case Barna ever wants to do a study of Hill City Church, they probably never will. But just for clarity, in case you are ever asked this question, I, w- I would hope that at Hill City Church, I'm not responsible for the American church, I would hope that we would see 100% of people say yes. Everyone, raise your hand and just say yes. yes. This is something expected of you. Here's, here's our main point for today. Jesus calls every disciple to make disciples. Jesus calls every disciple to make disciples. Now, you may not be fully ready to like mentor someone or lead a life group, right? There's this progression. This is why we have a path of discipleship. How many years did Jesus spend with his disciples before they really made disciples of their own? Over three years, okay? So if you're like, just got baptized, not that you're like off the hook necessarily, because you can still activate your spiritual gifts, you can still serve, you can still give, you can still help other people grow in their faith. I mean, anyone who's really at your same stage in faith or even behind you, you can help those people grow. But the reality is, if you've been following Jesus for longer than three and a half years, that's the time that Jesus, his disciples followed him. You have to understand that Jesus expects you. This is how we save the world. This is God's plan to save the world. Not church services that make disciples. Disciples who make disciples. And you might have this this question, well, what is a disciple maker? And by the way, you know, we've used one single word to describe the main step one. Be with Jesus was the word. Anyone remember it? I'm not a great preacher. I'm sorry you don't remember it. No. Abide, right? Step two, become like Jesus. The, the one word summary was, oh man, this is breaking my heart. Sanctify, okay? Abide, step one. Sanctify, step two. You want to know what step three is? What is the work that Jesus did? Disciple making. And if you're like, disciple making isn't a word, because every time I write the word disciple making, every spell check available says that's not a real word. Guess what? In the Greek, the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28 is literally mathetuo, which is the word disciple make. Does that make sense? Go disciple make. It's not two separate words. It's a one word thing. Disciple making is what Jesus called every single follower of him to do. Here's a a great definition by Alice who wrote this book. She says this, as disciple makers, we intentionally help people learn from Jesus and live more like him. And here's just some activities that disciple makers do. Praying with them, spending time together in the word, sharing in experiences of everyday life, and inspiring and equipping them to do the same with others. Do you see that last line? There's this expectation of multiplication. And after I've discipled you for a a year, a few years, guess what you're going to go do? Get fishing. Go fishing. Find someone else. Disciple them. This is how we have hundreds of millions of Christians today. From the 11 people that were on the mountain with Jesus... When he ascended. Do you see that? 
It's not because of fancy church programs. It's not even because of great sermons. And I'm all about great sermons. It's disciples who've made disciples who've made disciples for the last 2,000 years. So what are we doing, church in America? Why, why are we standing around? We've got to snap out of it. Every disciple is supposed to make disciples. And here's the beautiful thing. Can you pray with someone? Can you read the Bible with them? Even if you don't have all the answers, can you read the Bible with someone? Can you have coffee and you can just hear about their life and, hear, and help problem solve with them? And can you inspire them to do the same with others? You can do this. In the Barna research, they found these four barriers, okay? So these are, these are like statistics and research and all that sort of stuff. Here are four, the four main barriers holding uh, Christians back from making disciples. The first barrier, barrier number one, lack of resourcing. Lack of resourcing says, I don't know where to start. Well, you could read this book. I mean, you could go through a sermon series. You could, you know, there's resources that we can give you. But the reality is, the reason why American Christians aren't making disciples is the percentage of American Christians that have been discipled, not just gone to church programs, only 19% of American Christians have actually been discipled for any amount of time. I've had the privilege of being discipled by numerous people over many years of my life. And I would say this is how I've been able to make leaps and bounds in my spiritual growth and formation. Not just because I have Bible college degrees and all that sort of stuff. It's actually life on life transformation. That's the first barrier. So this is, might be the first place to start. If you'd be like, especially if you're, if you're not you know, growing or mature in your faith, last week, become like Jesus. Maybe you need to join a life group or you need to find a mentor, get into a Bible study, and just be around other Christians who can help disciple make you. Barrier number two, prioritizing disciple making among other responsibilities. This is the person who says, well, I'm just too busy. And I just want to snap back at that and say, can you ever really be too busy to do the one thing that Jesus expected us to do before he comes back? I think this is, the, this is actually the problem in the American church, that we really view obeying the commands of Jesus as optional and the American dream as primary. And so this is what, so I'm not, so hear me out. I'm not saying you need to add disciple making into your already busy schedule. I'm saying you need to put disciple making first and rearrange your schedule and cut out Netflix if you need to or cut out whatever else you need to so that you can do what Jesus asked us to do and stop burying that bag of gold in the ground. And the reality is, and this is another, this, that was very challenging, but here's something that might be a little encouraging. You might be close to disciple-making someone right now. Do you realize that? You might actually have lunch every single week with someone from your work. And they might actually have a spiritual curiosity. Do you realize all you might, you might not even have to schedule a new meeting each week, but you might just need to add a little bit of an intentionality to the people that you're already spending time with. God has already put people in your path, by the way. If you have kids who still live at home, guess who it is? Just say it. Who is it? It's your kids. You are the primary disciple maker of your kids. That's why it's so powerful to see families. Can we celebrate that, by the way, one more time? Families saying... We want to be the primary disciple makers of our children. And so you, I get, you already spend time with your kids if they live in your house, but you might just need to add a little bit more intentionality to your bedtime routine or to dinner time or to talking to them, not just being like, okay, the church, the Sunday school programs will disciple them. Ask the question, how can I be the primary disciple maker of your, of your children? Barrier number three is not wanting to make it weird. Do you ever have that fear? 
okay, I have lunch with this coworker each week, but we just talk about sports. We talk about the weather. It, I know what's going to happen if I bring up Jesus. It's just going to get weird, right? And uh, this barrier, <laughs> there's not really a great way around this. I was going to try to give you like a solution for each barrier. The barrier for this is just get over it, honestly. It's like dating, right? Joining a new small group is kind of like dating. It's going to be a little weird until you get to know the people and then it's totally normal. You, you go up to someone and you say, hey, would you like to meet with me and I'd like to pass on my spiritual knowledge to you or whatever? Don't say that. That's going to be, you can make it more weird or less weird, by the way. And, uh, and I would just say to you, it might be a little weird at first because when you're just getting to know someone, it's just always going to be a little bit weird. The good news about disciple-making relationships is if we're doing it right, there's a natural endpoint where that person goes off and they make more disciples. Isn't that great? So there's an expectation that people in your life group may not be in your, if you can't stand them, that's actually okay. Because there will be a point that hopefully you guys are, are, are multiplying and making more disciples. Barrier number four, lack of confidence in disciple making. This is the fear, I will mess it up. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. And I can tell you, I've made disciples. I've, I've led small groups for years. I've mentored people for, for years. You need to learn to let go of the results. Even Jesus had a Judas. There's only 11 men standing on top of that mountain. And I can tell you there are people who I've poured my very soul into that aren't following Jesus today. And I, we've got to water and we've got to plant, and we've got to trust God with the growth. So there's a certain level of just letting, trusting God with the results, but then you also have to realize you're not in this alone. We want to equip you. I want to equip you. In November, we're doing a teaching series called Go, where we're breaking down the Great Commission, four weeks just on that couple verses from the Great Commission. And I want to equip you. I want to, I want to show you books to read. I want to give you podcasts to listen to. I want to help you learn to be a disciple maker, because this is going to be a big deal for our church. Just spoiler alert, this is going to be a huge deal for our church this next year. I think God has blessed us with a beautiful discipleship culture, and I'm here to tell you we need to make the shift to having a disciple-making culture where every disciple knows they're going to make disciples. And it's not just that you're not alone because we're in this together as the church. The beautiful promise of Jesus is not follow me and figure out how to be a fisher of men. What does he say? Follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus goes with us with his Holy Spirit. He calls, we follow, and he makes us into something that God is calling us to. I want to close by reading the Great Commission. There's this beautiful promise. The last line of the Great Commission is a promise of God's presence. Jesus says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's stand and worship God. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.